I think what we're saying here is, you know, I, I kind of use the hurricane analogy. We went through the, the first wave. We're in the eye of the storm right now. The second wave is coming with the second quarter numbers. And I think some of these managers and some of these companies are going to have to go through some restructuring. And, and so that's going to be the, the initial opportunity. And what I would say to investors is uh, you have to take a long-term approach in, the, in this asset class as you think about it from a portfolio allocation. This is not like a, a liquid strategy where you come in and out and try to time the market. If you just invested in the last five years, this is the time where you want to put more money to work because this is where you're going to get the best risk-adjusted return as we go through this this next wave of the of the cycle. That was Ian Fowler, co-head of Global Private Finance, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 12 of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So on today's show, I spoke with Adam Wheeler and Ian Fowler, co-heads of Bearings Global Private Finance Group, and both actually prior guests on Streaming Income. In the conversation, we discussed where the COVID crisis is being felt most acutely across the private credit landscape, both by sector and geography, and also how government support programs are playing a role. We talked about how the competitive landscape among private credit managers is changing already and how that may result in opportunities, including in the secondary market. And finally, we discussed how pricing and structures are changing and whether the crisis might result in terms that are more attractive for investors in the months and years ahead. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Adam Wheeler and Ian Fowler. All right, Adam Wheeler and Ian Fowler, welcome back to the show. Very excited to have you guys here. We're doing it obviously virtually this time. Last time we were able to all do it in person. But Adam, where does that mean you're physically located today? I am actually sitting in my daughter's room where she does her homework. uh, We don't have a home office, so I set myself up here for, for working from home. So it's all a little awkward. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's good to be versatile, I guess. Uh, Ian, how about you? Where are you on, the, on this fine day? I am uh, down in Florida in a uh, spare bedroom. Also don't have a office and uh, just wanted to know I got cleaned up for you. I shaved and got a COVID haircut. <laughs> Not the finest, but it works. Uh, we appreciate the effort. Uh, well, listen, um, you know, last time we had you on the show, I think you guys did a really great job of kind of setting the stage for the asset class in terms of where we've come and where we and where we've got to. And you you did so kind of through the lens of your own careers, kind of looking back 30, 30 years or so. So if ever there was going to be a prerequisite for a podcast episode, this might be the one I actually might refer our listeners to go back and listen to that one, uh, which we recorded back in January just to hear about where we were then, where we had come from, and where we are now. Because 
I think today we're, we, we obviously want to focus on, you know, the world's changed a lot, certainly since, since January. We want to focus on where we are today, what's happening, and, and what the, the future might look like. So, so maybe let's start there. And Adam, I'd love to start with you. When we think about private credit, obviously, we don't have the luxury of being able to look at a screen and seeing prices move minute to minute. So we don't always have the best transparency into what's going on in the market. So maybe just broadly to start, can you tell us just what you've been seeing in your space uh, over the last few months since the COVID crisis has hit? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Maybe first, it's just worth saying that, you know, a lot of people have been badly affected by this COVID situation and our, our thoughts do go out to them and their and their families. And I think this situation is is really been unparalleled really in, in my working time anyway, where you've seen what was initially a health crisis turn into a, a significant financial crisis, which is very different to, you know, the, the sort of 08, 09 sort of Lehman event where it's the first time in, in my working history that I've seen companies generate zero revenue. So I think the, the impact here on, on companies has been significant and it's still, still playing out. So I think we've, we've seen some, some sectors uh, basically close their doors now for a period of time. It's going to take, I think we're starting to work through. I think when we look at our portfolio companies, we know where the issues are, but it's just a question of, of how long lockdowns, as it's referred to here in the UK, will continue for, which will determine the, the impact on, on a number of companies. You know, Adam... I'll just jump in for a second. And obviously, Adam and I uh, together run the global business. And I just add that a couple things. One, echo what, what Adam said and, and our, our thoughts to, to those people that have been impacted by this. I uh, hope everyone listening is, is safe and well. You know, we've, we've been uh, very vocal internally in terms of as we're dealing with companies, and obviously this can be a stressful situation for a number of, of companies out there that are dealing with direct or indirect COVID exposure, but we don't know what's going on in their personal lives. And, and so we're trying to you know, treat people with respect. Obviously, we're uh, very focused on our investments, but we're, we're also very focused in treating uh, people uh, with respect and, and knowing that they could be going through some challenging and, and difficult uh, times. I would say what's interesting is what's happening in North America is very similar to Europe. So it's it's really the, the same impact that Adam talked about. But one point I would mention, though, with your question, which I disagree a little bit regarding transparency, and, and yes, we don't have transparency with respect to prices, but I would suggest that we have better more transparent and, and real-time access to information from our portfolio companies through access to management, which is different than some of those those larger companies. And, and so that's obviously very helpful. Mm. So, so what are some of the sectors that you're seeing kind of the most stress in? And I'm curious in terms of, as you look at, at your own portfolios, you know, where, where the kind of stress is kind of manifesting itself the most? I'll start and then let Adam jump in in case I, I missed something and also just talk about uh, specifically Europe. But, you know, I would say, and, and I think this comes from the fact that we are a, a global asset manager. And so as a firm, we were very focused on this 
whole event early on, uh, probably more so than than some of our colleagues in our space that are more uh, North American focused and, and probably European focused as well. Um, and obviously, everyone saw it initially just from a global markets perspective and demand shocks and supply chain. But as it imported into North America, I don't think anyone could have foreseen or construct a portfolio that would be immune from this COVID situation. But what we saw early on was the direct hit that a number of industries took from, from the health crisis initially. And that was industries like travel, retail, restaurants, oil and gas, uh, basic energies. All of those industries we, we avoid completely or, or have very little exposure to. We have no retail, no restaurants, or oil and gas in our North American portfolio. And is that is that is a result of this crisis, or is that just standard operating practice for you and the team? That, I mean, we view those as as red industries. They're they're tougher. I mean, the fashion and fad risk associated with retail and and restaurants is really difficult to underwrite consumer preferences. We just don't think any industry that has its own uh, unique cyclicality from demand supply like oil and gas is something that should be invested in on a, on a private basis because you could just invest at the wrong time and you can't get out at the right time. But I, but the thing I would add, and I'll turn over to Adam, is that what I don't think any of us totally saw coming was the, the shelter-in-place aspect of, of the health crisis. And you know that, that was a great unknown because even in the U.S., there are certain states that took it to a certain degree, like New York, which was you know, very conservative, Florida, less conservative. I actually know we're not invested in it, but I, I know a uh, owner of a boat manufacturing company. He was deemed essential service in Florida. So the question of what businesses became essential and which companies weren't essential, that all was dependent on the, on the governors of each state. And so that's where the impact of this was completely random and reckless, I think. Adam, how about from your perspective? Anything different in, in Europe? Oh, look, I think I think quite similar. I, I mean, initially this started out as a supply chain issue coming out of China, and when we looked at our portfolio companies, it was all about what is that impact, um, and then that spread very quickly. I mean, you saw the impact initially in Italy and in Spain and then spreading through Europe, um, and then countries starting to lock down their populations and no travel and no spending. So anything that's been consumer-facing has been impacted very heavily. And as Ian said, a lot of those industries that have really suffered are things that that we have very, very, if any, exposure to because we've just always avoided businesses that are inherently cyclical, those that are, you know, as Ian referred to, fad risk, that are very dependent on the economic cycle. So what you've seen here is the, the absolute extreme of that where, you know, people just stop spending money and, and businesses have had to close their doors to protect their staff. So, you know, I couldn't envisage a situation where, where you've seen that happen, but it's kind of taken that, that avoidance of cyclical businesses to, to a degree that you'd never expect to see. So, so, I mean, we have no exposure to restaurants, very little exposure to travel, no exposure to commodity-linked stuff. So I think we've held up relatively well through, through all of this. And, you know, there's very few companies within our portfolio that are 
that are not generating revenue today, which are, which I think you know places us in a in a good position to to come out of this this crisis. Yeah. Now, policymakers and governments around the world have, have obviously not been standing still. Um, they've largely been trying to to help in a variety of ways, whether it's injecting liquidity into the system, whether it's providing unemployment benefits, that sort of thing in different countries. How are you seeing that kind of impact some of the, the middle market issuers? I think that's very much country by country. I think when all the, initially when we saw this, we expected there to be a significant liquidity problem for a lot of companies because no one was going to provide them with any cash to get through this. Uh, I'm just speaking generally across the, the economy rather than just, just our, our uh, portfolio. And then a lot of governments stepped up to provide support initially through sort of furloughing schemes, particularly here in the UK, and then France, Germany and others have, have come forward to provide loans to try and get people through. I think the furloughing schemes have, have worked quite well and, and a lot of companies have been able to manage their cost base. I think a lot of the government support programs in the form of loans in Europe have not worked as well for a lot of private equity-backed companies. I think initially we were expecting a lot of companies to be able to access those schemes. Turns out that a lot of governments don't like uh, bailing out private equity-backed businesses. So they've they've struggled to, to source loans. And, and I, I suppose in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of people have little success in accessing those schemes. So I think that puts a lot of those companies in, a, in quite a difficult situation relative to sort of either public or smaller privately owned businesses that are involved in the PE industry. Mm-hmm. Is that the same kind of scenario playing out in the U.S. as well, Ian? Yeah, I would say sitting on both sides, I, I think the a lot of the programs in Europe, I think the furlough programs were more effective in terms of getting money into hands of individuals and companies than in the U.S. The U.S., there's really two programs other than unemployment. The, the Fed's program of Main Street, which is very similar to what Adam was discussing, where it's a, it's a real loan. Uh, it needs to be repaid in full. There's there's a, a tenor. There's a amount of leverage you can get, pricing, the whole thing. But, I mean, that's very difficult for a company to access that already has leverage. And and so uh, it would prime the existing lender. and And so... The existing lender would have to be okay with that, and obviously, that that's probably not going not going to happen. So, that program I, I really don't see uh, being all that effective. And the PPP program, uh, which is coming from the Small Business Association, I, I think is more effective. It's it's really to support payroll and and occupancy costs, and it can be a grant depending on how it's actually used and forgivable. Some of our companies took that money. Uh, some took it and, and returned it after reading the, the details of the documentation. I think there are some industries, and again, these are industries that we're not invested in. For example, restaurants, which are really hurting, where that program just doesn't make sense because why would you keep your staff on when you're completely shut down and, and pay them and have to keep paying them knowing that that business may take years to come back to where it was or may never come back to where it was. And, and so unfortunately for some of those industries that were severely impacted, that program just is not really truly effective. Interesting. Well, let's switch gears for a minute here. I want to talk a little bit about the competitive landscape. And, you know, when I think about this space, I think the perception is that a lot of capital has, has come into 
the asset class over the last cycle. And I guess alongside that, a lot of new entrants have come into the to the asset class as well. It's been more and more popular for institutional investors and other allocators to invest in. So there's just been a whole lot more activity in private credit over the last cycle, generally speaking. Ian, I'd like to get your sense on on how the crisis here will will impact that. So I wonder, for instance, will we see uh, a slowdown in new entrants or even people leaving uh, the industry? Will we see uh, consolidation among managers? You know, what, what do you, what do you see generally from a competitive perspective so far? Well, what's interesting is the rapid nature of. I mean, it was almost like a switch being flipped when uh, in March the the full impact of the health crisis hit and that caught a number of direct lenders off guard obviously companies wanted to secure as much liquidity not knowing what was going to happen next so the inevitable and this happens in every cycle first thing companies do is they draw down their revolvers and so we we had revolver draws it was interesting there were a number of uh, direct lenders out there that we saw that were unable to fund uh, some of their uh, drawdown requests. So they were, in effect, defaulting lenders. After a couple days or, or a week or so, they were able to either get rescue capital or, or find some other capital to, to make their uh, investments. So that, that was interesting. And, and I think that will play a role going forward depending on the oncoming recession and the performance within those portfolios because the, the reality is in the North American market, most of the vehicles, whether it's a public vehicle or a private vehicle, it's a levered vehicle. And, and that means there's a leverage facility behind that, that portfolio provided by a bank typically. And, and so there will be margin calls depending on the performance of those vehicles. So the quality and the strength of the portfolio, the, the way lenders have managed uh, their leverage, you know, whether it's conservative or they've fully maximized uh, their leverage with, with little cushion, will definitely create uh, some heartaches for, for some direct lending platforms, which we see as an opportunity. There will definitely be some consolidation there will be an opportunity to poach resources. There, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but you know, we'll, we'll see some secondary opportunities where there's distressed sellers, not necessarily distressed credits, because lenders need to raise liquidity. And and so, I think there's another wave here. Um, we're kind of in this quiet moment right now, where everyone is focused internally on their their own portfolio. You know, M&A activity is pretty anemic, but at the end of the day, and this is something that I've said for years, um, and we probably have it written down somewhere, if you're going to come into this asset class, yes, you've got to write the asset class, but you have to underwrite the platform. And I've just seen so many changes over the years and through multiple cycles where platforms don't survive a cycle. They're, they don't have the strength, they don't have the sustainability or the diversification. And I think for those platforms that are, call it one-dimensional, one-fund uh, direct lending platforms are going to have 
uh, some real difficulty. And for us, given you know our ownership with Mass Mutual and Bearings and all the resources that that we have and the broad nature of our platform, we're always looking for opportunities like this. I wouldn't want the health crisis to, to be part of it, just a normal economic recession. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we're positioned well, and, and this is something we've been doing for 30, 40 years at Bearings. So there, there will definitely be players that are not going to survive this, this cycle. And I think to Ian's point, I mean, if you think about when this thing started to impact, most people's performance in March were fine. It's not really till we see performance in for the June quarter that we're going to see an impact from, from what's gone on with this COVID crisis. So when Ian refers to you know, leverage facilities and people being margin called, we haven't seen that yet. So there could be a significant wave of that coming in the next couple of months. So in July and August, there could be a massive impact on a number of um, levered managers in North America. Um, so I think that could present itself with a with a really good opportunity because, as Ian says, it's not the underlying assets themselves may not necessarily be distressed, but the manager itself is a stressed seller of assets and needs liquidity, which is perfect for someone who has liquidity to buy those assets because you're not buying, you're not trying to catch that falling knife. You're you're actually trying to pick good assets that are performing, and someone just needs cash. Uh, I mean, we, when we think of private credit, though, we we usually think of a market that's kind of by definition illiquid right so does that do do the mechanisms exist within the market for for there to be some sort of a a secondary market like you're describing i think you'll see more of to be honest i think you'll see more of that in north america because of the structure of that market where you've got most of the capital raised as as levered i think in europe that's going to be less of an opportunity because most people have raised um unlevered funds Nevertheless, a lot of managers do have levered capital in in uh, Europe, but I think a lot of the issue for European managers is they run a lot more concentration in their portfolios. So, you know, you could have two or three issues and that could, could wipe out the return on your fund, uh, which means that I think you will see some consolidation in Europe as well. And I think you're already starting to see that where, I think I mentioned this in our last chat where I read, 85% of the transactions done in Europe are completed by a handful of the top five or six managers. That just says to me that you've got a, you've got a very long tail of small managers that are going to raise capital. And I think this crisis is just going to accelerate that outcome of, of consolidation. One thing I would say with the US, which I think will have a big impact, you know, we're talking about the leverage providers, you know, to provide the facilities for the direct lenders to, to get leverage on the equity for the vehicles. I think to your question, there will be opportunities in the secondary that we'll see directly from direct lenders, mm-hmm. but you'll also see those leverage facility lenders essentially coming to people that they know have liquidity to force either a full outright sale of a portfolio or part of a portfolio. That's what we saw in the last crisis. And so the other thing to think about is there's so much money that's coming to this market. And obviously all that, all that capital was supported by these leverage facilities. A number of these banks have their own issues within their own portfolios right now and will through a recession. So you know that there will be a limit in terms of how much of that kind of capital is going to be available going forward. And it will be available for the top direct lenders in the space. It won't be available for everyone. And I think that will be another force within the North American market 
that will indicate which which uh, shops are going to survive and which ones will not. That's great context. So you've given us a, a sense of kind of the competitive landscape and, and kind of what some of the factors are that you'll be watching. If we take it down to the individual investment level, right? So when we're talking about private credit, we're usually thinking at of it obviously as an asset class characterized by performing credits. But obviously, as we go through a cycle here, credits are going to go through periods of stress, distress, et cetera. We've already talked about what some of those sectors could be. Adam, tell me if, I wonder, is this is this as much of an opportunity as it is a threat? And if so, I guess, how are you thinking about capitalizing on that? And then I'm also kind of just wondering how you guys think about originating new performing investments versus dealing with troubled credits that you may have in the portfolio? Because I imagine the latter could take a lot of time and, and resource. So how are you striking that balance? Yeah, there's, re- there's really two opportunity sets that, that you described there. I mean, one is new M&A activity, which, which I think, you know, as Ian said, is down significantly from where it was a couple of months ago. From what I'm seeing in Europe, it's starting to trickle back, but I'm I'm talking about a trickle. And I think, you know, the pricing and terms and leverage there will actually be pretty attractive. So I think from a performing new M&A, if I want to describe it that way, typical transaction, I think the next vintage of these funds will actually be pretty good. I think then, but going back to the other set that you described, which is more of that stress slash distressed, I suppose the way the way I'm thinking about that is there's a couple of buckets of opportunity there that I see in in that directly originated space. And I, I suppose I'm you know talking more about Europe here and LED and talk more about North America, but I think there will be some for selling activity, but that's a, a smaller set than I think what we'll see in North America driven by that sort of distressed seller situation that we just described. I think there's going to be a bunch of companies that have taken on liquidity through this that are going to have broken balance sheets coming out of it that are going to need restructuring. Um, and I think that's going to represent a really good opportunity. And I also think there are other companies that just are unable to access credit. So we've got a bunch of flow at the moment that I think looks kind of interesting where we could provide, you know, first lane security, maybe it's partly cash, maybe it's partly peer because they haven't got as much cash flow as they expected and and get a chunk of equity for, for doing that. I think those sort of things could represent significant upside for investors over the next couple of years. And when I think about how this sort of opportunity evolved coming out of the last crisis, it wasn't in the middle of the crisis that all of these opportunities became available. It was, you know, up to two years after that as, as you know, as things started to settle and people realised where what, what needed to be done, that, that a lot of good opportunities presented themselves. And then when I look back at, at, at where we invested then, some of the best deals we, we probably did were back in 10 and 11, you know, well past when Lehman um, imploded. So I think that's going to be the same the same thing this time. So I don't think you necessarily have to rush and and look to deploy capital into the first thing that you see because I think there's just going to be a long tail of things because this crisis is going to continue for some time. Okay, yeah, that, that's great context. So th- this is going to take a long time to play out. We've seen similar crises play out over a number of years in the past. Interesting to hear both from the impact on the manager side that there's there's sort of a delayed impact there and then also in terms of the the opportunities for for some of these stressed and distressed credit situations so 
that's really interesting to hear because I think there's a natural inclination to maybe more so in the public markets to, to think about kind of scooping things up at kind of rock bottom prices. But what I'm hearing from you is that this crisis is going to take years to play out and there's going to be issues to deal with over that time. There's going to be opportunities to capitalize on over that time as well. The, the way I think about it is we're not, we're not really looking for distressed opportunities. What we're looking for are companies that, that we think have a sustainable business model that have a reason to exist, that we think still have value for their customers as they come out of this. And what we're really doing is providing flexible capital to help people get through the dislocation. That could potentially be super senior debt. It could potentially be MES. It could potentially be preferred equity. It's just, it's just providing a solution to help a company get through a very difficult situation. Yeah, it seems like that kind of trend toward flexible capital is becoming much more, much more pronounced, I think, across the industry. Ian, how about from a North American perspective? How are you seeing this play out there? Well, look, I mean, we are, we have capital to, to invest and we've actually done a, a few deals uh, last month. We're looking at a few deals now because the, the terms are very attractive, but this is not the time to back up the truck. And so the, the key focus is these are obviously companies that have no impact or are benefiting from the COVID situation and from a general recession perspective, we feel very comfortable that they'll get through a, a cycle and continue to grow. So we, we are open for business. But what I would say in terms of managing the other side, which is the portfolio, a couple comments. One, I am so glad I'm not in the non-sponsored space because if I had a portfolio of non-sponsored companies, middle market companies, we would be running around trying to get our hands around what's happening with all these companies, at least in the private equity world, you can leverage the private equity firms to be there, to be on the ground, mm -hmm. maybe in a virtual sense, sure. but to be there and to be doing most of the legwork, the heavy lifting, and that allows us to focus on more of the analysis. That is so critical in a time like this. And then the other thing is resources. And I think this gets back to my earlier comment regarding the platform. We've always been a platform where we've grown our team as we've grown the, the portfolio. There are a lot of firms out there that just don't do that. And they are going to be completely strapped in terms of managing their portfolio and taking advantage of opportunities that, that come in, in the market. A couple of things that we've done at Bearings is as we vet forecasts with companies, we, we work with our high-yield industry experts to make sure that uh, what the companies are seeing is actually what the high-yield industry analysts are seeing from a, a larger perspective uh, to see if it, it matches. And also, we're, we're working more closely in terms of the companies that need some help. Uh, we're working more closely with our uh, special SITS group, which you know provides counsel in terms of managing situations where you have a, a restructuring that's going to occur. So being able to leverage all those resources makes us better positioned to take advantage of both new opportunities and as well as manage the portfolio. And I agree with Adam. I mean, we're going to see the next wave will be these uh, secondary sales and, and uh, liquidity gap opportunities. Yeah, yeah. 
a lot of these themes I've heard from you before, Ian, as you just mentioned. So the kind of investing in, in, in sponsor-backed deals, the concept of underwriting the platform. I've been hearing you say this stuff for years. So uh, I think we're in a time period now where it's clear why you've been saying it for, for years. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you about is, is kind of more on the opportunity side as we go forward. So one of the things that has been hard for some of us to wrap our heads around has been public markets really bouncing back quite aggressively since the lows in uh, March. On the one hand, while you're seeing still pretty dire news, both with regards to the COVID crisis itself, but also with regards to all the economic impacts of that, those two sort of diverging. So I guess my question for you, Ian, to start, and then and then it'd be great to get your view on this too, Adam, is, you know, as you think about what the pricing environment looks like, what the structuring environment looks like after this crisis, will it be a more attractive environment to invest into? Because right before the crisis, you know, there were period, there were parts of the market that we talked about on our last podcast that were, you know, possibly getting somewhat overheated. So what do you what do you expect to see on as we move through this and on, and on the other side of it? Well, like Adam said, I, I think this is going to be a great vintage and, and a great opportunity as, as we work through this this cycle. One of the differences between the public market and the private market is the public market is just more volatile, and and it's it's volatile because not only of of fundamental factors but also technical factors, things like liquidity and you know force redemptions and and things like that which we don't have in the private market our private market is just really more focused around fundamental performance it's hold to maturity and and so if you're in a good business um, and you're getting paid well for the investment you're holding it to the maturity of that loan and you're not worried about the the ups and downs of, of pricing the volatility and that's why i think investors like this asset class because it is not so correlated to so many other financial assets that that have that liquidity and and that volatility. And so I I think this is going to be a great opportunity, again, whether it's starting off with secondaries and then gap capital, and then, you know, as the M&A market starts to to come back, it's going to be priced well, um, and the documentation is going to be attractive. And and so I, I think, you know, this is the time to be in this in the space yeah i i completely agree with ian and and i and i think we we have some real life live i should say examples that we're working on where you know we were looking at transactions you know pre this i'll just refer as pre-covid that were pulled and have come back again that we're looking at where the enterprise value is essentially the same. So the private equity firm is willing to pay the same for this business because it has not been impacted through through this period of time. Yet the leverage we're looking to apply to that transaction is lower. The pricing is significantly higher and the docs are, are better. So that just says to you that, that the next vintage is is going to be an attractive one. So I think I think it looks from a performing sort of M and A side, it looks it it looks like it will be it will be good. It's a question of how long that lasts, clearly, and and I think that's part of the competitive dynamic and and, and how people behave. But I, but I do think there are going to be a bunch of people that are going to struggle through this with their portfolios. So I think you might have less competition 
in the market than we did beforehand as well, which means that I think that pricing will, will sustain itself for a while. Adam, how about that uh, conversation we had the other day at IC where we were looking at that deal with warrants? When was the last time we we actually were talking about penny warrants in a transaction? A decade ago. So I, I think there's an opportunity to get some, you know, as Ian said, like there's some old school sort of mezzanine investing equity upside from senior debt investing structures, senior structures, which I think is something that's just been unheard of for a very, very, very long time. Are you calling us old, Adam? I would never say that to you, Ian. I would never say that. <laughs> that may have happened on the last podcast <laughs> from, from memory. It's, it's experience. It's not age. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, okay. Well, well, well that's, that's good context. But so, so it sounds like from your perspective, the, uh, I don't know if you would say there's the markets hit the reset button or not, but essentially you're, you're, you're going to see some more attractive structures and pricing coming out of this than you did going into it. I do think there is some sort of price discovery going on at the moment where, where things are settling. But, but I do think it will settle at a level that is better than we were seeing, than what we were seeing in January, put it that way. And then how about just in terms of like specifically where you might see opportunity? I know, Ian, you've talked a lot about this concept of the true middle market. So really the middle of the middle market, if you will, where some of the, some of the transactions at the top are almost competing with broadly syndicated loans and, and maybe have terms that look similar to that. Whereas some of the, the lower middle market companies have their own challenges, do you still expect that that true, quote unquote, true middle market will be the, the most attractive space going forward? Well, I think, look, uh, the, that perspective was based at the end of the cycle when the market was extremely hot. And so what I, what I do expect to happen is I think we're going to move towards a more traditional market that we used to see in, in our world where it's, it's senior and junior capital, uh, maybe not as deep unit tranche because, and I guess it'll depend on how these really deep unit tranche deals that everyone called senior, but at seven times, I don't know how you can call it senior, but it depends on how they perform and whether you're going to have uh, the leverage facilities supporting those deals like they did uh, pre-crisis. So I, I think we could revert, and, and I could see meds coming back in, in a way in, in the North American market for sure. And so for smaller companies, I think what you'll see is better risk return where it's less leveraged and, and returns widen. So you, you'll have senior debt and, and mezzanine behind it. And we might, you know, again, if we're getting paid for the risk, we may find some of those smaller companies where we're getting paid like returns attractive. What we weren't happy with was where the market was pre-crisis, where it was all senior, the spreads had compressed and the leverage had basically moved up to where the middle of the middle market was. So companies two to three times the size, um, but with far less enterprise value. And you have to wonder how some of these small companies with all that leverage are, are working their way through through this cycle right now. And then on the longer, on the upper end of the market, as I said a number of times, to me, that strategy of, of moving up market was style drift. Uh, these were traditional uh, direct lenders trying to put more dollars out the door. 
Some of them would never touch a, a retail or restaurant company in the middle market, but we're financing mega tranche deals in the, in the large market because they got comfortable that bigger is better, economies of scale uh, were more defensible. And in a normal crisis, maybe that would have been true. But in this market, this crisis that we're in right now, all I can say is I'm so glad we're not in that in that position because I don't know how you bridge a company that has 100 to 200 million of EBITDA or revenue just went to zero and bridge it through this this cycle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you were doing mega tranche deals in retail or restaurant, travel, oil and gas, you have not only a lot of issues you have to work through, but you're going to need a lot of capital. And so look, again, if this were a normal economic recession, maybe those companies would have ended up differently, but that's not where you want to be in today's world. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I just overlay with that asset selection, you know, avoiding certain sectors that are super cyclical. And, and I think that's why we're in a relatively good position today because of that, that investment philosophy and focus on, well, I should say avoiding certain sectors that are, that are impacted heavily in a downturn. Clearly, no one expected it to be this extreme, but I just emphasize that it's about lending to solid companies with the right capital structure. Well, as we draw this to a close, gentlemen, uh, just curious if there's any other trends you're watching or any other kind of pieces of advice you might have for investors as they think about navigating this market um, in the months and years ahead. Yeah, I think in terms of, of watching the asset class, I think it's still evolving. I think there are managers uh, that are holding back the tide on, on their portfolio. And I think in, in through Q2 and Q3, that will become very apparent. And I think when you look at the way people are valuing assets uh, with you know very little downgrade in their portfolio generally, and you can see that in public marks in BDCs, a lot of that hasn't been built into to the NAV for a lot of these funds. So I think for some people that have been heavily impacted, or they should say their portfolios are heavily impacted, I think the da the, there's still a lot of downside for a lot of people. Ian, how about from your perspective? Yeah, no, I agree with Adam. And again, I, I think what we're saying here is, you know, I, I kind of use the hurricane analogy. We went through the, the first wave. We're in the eye of the storm right now. The second wave is coming with the, second quarter numbers. And I think some of these managers and some of these companies are going to have to go through some restructuring. And, and so that's going to be the, the initial opportunity. And what I would say to investors is uh, you have to take a long-term approach in, the, in this asset class as you think about it from a portfolio allocation. This is not like a, a liquid strategy where you come in and out and try to time the market. If you just invested in the last five years, this is the time where you want to put more money to work because this is where you're going to get the best risk-adjusted return as we go through this this next wave of the of the cycle. Yeah, completely agree with that. Great. Well, that is clear. Taking that long-term approach, focusing on underwriting the the platform as always, I think are some of the key key messages that I'll take away. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate it. I know you've got a lot on your plates um, and I appreciate you dialing in from these remote locations and um, please pass a word of thanks along to your daughter, Adam, <laughs> letting us use your, her room for this. 
and uh, and I hope you you and your families both stay uh, stay safe and healthy throughout this. And I hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to episode twelve of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.